There is no roadmap for what is happening in the world today, but the more informed you are, the better your chances are for successfully navigating these uncertain times. This is why the registry continues to bring its real estate news coverage to keep you informed and better prepared to meet the challenges of the industry. We can only do this because of generous readers who support our work. Thank you to your commitment to journalism, especially now. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you can join us at the registrysf.com in San Francisco and at the registryps.com in Seattle. Jordan Moss is the founder of Catalyst Housing Group, a Larkspur, California-based housing investor that focuses on building healthier communities throughout the state of California. Catalyst works in partnership with California Community Housing Agency, CalCHA, with which it has already invested over $550 million in premier multifamily rental communities throughout Northern California. These assets are converted to rent-restricted communities serving middle-income households and are eventually given to the underlying jurisdictions on a long-term basis. It's an innovative model that drives Jordan and his organization. Welcome, Jordan. People come to the San Francisco Bay Area for many reasons, a spectacular natural setting, a sophisticated lifestyle, and unique professional opportunities. Those seeking these qualities will find all that and more at Hacienda where you can work, live, and grow. A Hacienda location means having the best of everything with an easy reach, whether it's world-class restaurants, theater, and museums, the best learning institutions in the country, or some of the finest services available. That particularly applies to businesses wanting the best address to have easy access to needed resources, being among other industry leaders and knowing that you are part of a region that leads the world in innovation. The result? An unbeatable combination that leads to success. And that is what you will find at Hacienda. Find out more by visiting Hacienda on the web at www.hacienda.org. Jordan, good morning. How are you? Vlad, I'm great. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Where are you today in these uh, late August, almost early September days? I'm in uh, Marin County, just north of San Francisco, where I was raised and live today with with my family. And uh, luckily, the air is clearing up a little bit. It's been uh, it's been a bit smoky here. Yeah, but uh, we're hanging in there. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like it's uh, something that's now becoming like an annual recurring thing almost in the in the Bay Area. Unfortunately, so unfortunately, yeah. This is, I think, the fourth year in a row where we've had either. Uh, fires sort of directly affecting us here in kind of Marin, Sonoma County yep. or throughout the Bay Area uh, and or, you know, sort of displacement and evacuations caused by other fires like we had last year. So, yeah, it's unfortunately becoming an annual thing. Uh, anyone who says global warming is not occurring, uh, look no further than Northern California. And I live in Seattle, and we've had a couple of years ago, we had some pretty bad fires in British Columbia, which affected this whole sort of Pacific North Northwest region. It was, you know, similar, you know, to the point where, you know, they were telling people not to go out and stay indoors and that kind of stuff. So um, I I know how it feels. And, and unfortunately, yeah, it is, it, you know, it is an impact of, of our society, and hopefully we can do something about it over the next decade, right? <laughs> That's um, the hope. Yeah. 
Well, Jordan, thank you for for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, by way of kind of introducing yourself, would you mind telling us a little bit about you know yourself and Catalyst and kind of how you got there and what the company does? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, well, as I mentioned, was uh, was raised in the Bay Area and um, have been in the in the institutional multifamily business for close to 20 years now. It's hard to hard to believe that's the case. I, I still think of myself as a relatively young guy, but I'm officially in my 40s now, so <laughs> right. maybe that's not the case. Right. But um, you know, most of that time was spent on the more market rate side of the business. And I started Catalyst a handful of years ago at the beginning of 2015 to focus exclusively on affordable housing. And out of the gates, we were focused on more traditional capital A affordable housing. We were building tax credit, bond financed assets, mostly in and around Seattle, actually, Vlad. Uh, we did some stuff in Linwood, Bothell, and uh, over in uh, Bellevue. Okay. But um, you know, we realized along the way that there, there were a couple of things that were just driving us crazy with that model. The first was the non-scalable nature of the traditional affordable housing finance model when you're dependent upon allocations of tax credits and private activity bonds and oftentimes local subsidies and and other things it's re- it's really difficult um, to, to figure out how to scale yeah. that business and if you think of the the scale of the housing crisis that we have here in California for example the thought was that that alone is not the answer the litech program as I've said many times before has been hugely influential over time since the mid 80s in creating millions of housing units across the country but on its own it's not the answer none of these things is 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 going to be the answer yeah. which is why we need sort of new innovative approaches i think it would be worthwhile just kind of giving an example of of how difficult that really is we've talked to a couple of affordable housing builders in 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 the past but but just to give us sort of a sense of the stack right that and and all the kind of stars that need to align to make a project like that pencil out um you know give us give us just sort of a sense of that because i I think that's an important aspect of that yeah i'm happy to i mean there's we could probably spend our entire time on (laughs) right right misaligned interest and perverse incentives that exist um you know i think it's well documented that the cost of producing affordable housing is oftentimes 30 40 50 percent greater than the cost of producing market rate housing and the reason for that is some of these perverse incentives and, and just the framework that you're forced to work within. And so labor requirements would be one piece of that. From the capital side of things alone, which is sort of, I think, what you were asking about, um, it's it's really difficult today. If you look at California, for example, and you look at the pool of private activity bonds, states are allocated on a national basis a pool of of bonds dependent upon uh, the size of the state. Yeah. And for for a state the size of California, even though we're one of the larger states and get one of the larger allocations, there's a lot more housing production here than elsewhere. And so we're at a point today where many of those valuable resources no longer really exist. I mean, it's a highly competitive process. And realistically, it's skewed as it should be. I'm not, I'm not arguing with this, but it really skews towards the production of housing, new production of housing at the lower ends of the affordability spectrum. So I would think of that as sort of households who earn from zero to 50 or 60% of median income. Right. And this actually ties well to kind of the, the second point that I was going to make about us realizing that not only is the capital side of this not efficient, but that you cannot work within those traditional confines to address 
the missing middle, the middle income housing crisis that we have in California. And that increasingly most uh, uh, regions across the, across the country are facing. And if you think of the nurses, teachers, first responders in your community, these folks earn in excess of 60% of median income, which is where tax credits end, uh, but not enough to live within the communities that they serve and that depend upon them. And if you look at the largest super commuter regions in the country, they're all in California. It's Stockton, Modesto, and the Inland Empire. And it's pretty clear, it's pretty easy to figure out, I should say, what's going on there. You know, people are commuting into either uh, for the folks in the Inland Empire, into the Los Angeles metro, or in Northern California for folks in Stockton and Modesto, right. into the core Bay Area. And this is just a non-sustainable situation. If you think about school districts in Northern California and the difficulties they have of attracting and retaining teachers, it all comes back to this housing issue and our inability to provide affordable housing to the essential middle-income workforce. Yeah. So you've uh, you've identified essentially that that in a, in the older model or in this sort of existing model it doesn't doesn't scale. So now, you know, tell us about then, you know, catalysts, right? So what what have you guys uh, done about that? Sure. So w- when we had the aha moment that uh, that that tax credit model just wasn't going to work for us, we actually ended up assembling a working group consisting of bankers, attorneys, consultants, folks from the governmental side of things, trying to figure out how to solve for those two pain points at once, how to develop a more scalable, programmatic, off-the-grid capital structure that also addressed the missing middle. And the culmination of those efforts took us a couple of years to fully get there, but we collectively ended up launching a new state agency in the state of California called CalCHA, the California Community Housing Agency. And CalCHA was born, if you will, in January of 2019. It's a joint powers authority. It's a political subdivision of the state of California. And its sole purpose for existence is all about furthering middle-income housing across the state. And what's really unique about CalCHA is its powers of governmental ownership. And so CalCHA itself is directly acquiring and, and soon to be developing housing that's exclusively uh, targeted and restricted to sub 120% median income households. So it's really for 60, that's 60 to 120% median income space that is generally referred to as the missing middle. And I would say the ultimate takeaway as to uh, what CalCHA is doing is, uh, is public benefit creation, not only in these below market rents, that CalCHA is creating uh, for desperately needed middle-income households. But one of the key parts of this program is that all of the upside of what we're doing is ultimately granted to the underlying jurisdiction. Yeah. And so, you know, when we go into a city and acquire an asset and pay off those bonds that are financing that asset over a 30-year period, all of the embedded equity, all of the long-term cash flow, the control of the asset itself is all granted to the municipality. And it's for that reason that when we look at this program, you know, we're happy already and proud of, of what we've created and what we've done. But our real hope is that we look back 30 years down the road 
and we will have proven to have created tens of billions of dollars of public benefit that's all being reinvested into additional forms of affordable housing across the state. Yeah, and that, <clears throat> and that's a very important thing to underscore, right? I think this is this was certainly an innovative way of doing it. And is, are there other models of of Cal CHA in, in, in other countries, other you know other states, or was this an innovation you know purely coming out of California? I can't answer the question about other countries. We haven't really dug into that in detail. Uh, as far as other states. It's something we're paying more and more attention to all the time. I could tell you we have dug in uh, to to enough uh, other states or other jurisdictions sort of outside of California to understand that what we're doing is not exactly replicable. We can't cut and paste the exact model right. that we're utilizing here, but we do think there's going to be similar structures, and we actually created a nonprofit earlier this year. And we're doing a few different things with that nonprofit. But one of the main things we're doing is chasing down opportunities in other state for 501c3 ownership of housing for middle-income households, where it just seems like based on existing statutes within those states, it's going to be easier to do this with nonprofit ownership than with governmental ownership. So we do hope to expand to other states in the not too distant future. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And then tell us about, you know, what was the what has been the level of activity so far through, you know, Cal CHA and for Catalyst in general, you know, tell us about some of the projects you're proud of and things you're working on today. Yeah, it's been pretty strong. We um we've now acquired with Cal CHA four assets in Northern California over the past 16 months or so. In total, that's about $550 million of acquisition volume. Okay, yeah. We actually uh, just today, believe it or not, um, signed up our next transaction, which is uh, a, another, you know, call it $200 million-ish transaction in Northern California. We're making great strides in Southern California to add membership to Cal CHA, which is really the gating requirement to us being able to do this in any municipality. We need to first go to the the city, the county, the housing authority, um, and get them to sign up for Cal CHA. Yeah. And so we we currently have about 14 members. We think we'll have uh, more than 20 by the end of the year. And uh, I would say one of the democratizing uh, things to come out of COVID is that we're spending a lot of time now over Zoom in Southern California with various city councils and municipalities. And so we're getting a lot more traction down there and hope to sign up our first transactions in Southern California in the not too distant future. Yeah. So as an organization, you've been around, you said, for about a handful of years, right? Um, you know, tell us about that experience, like kind of, you know, growing the business and growing the people sort of side of it as well. Sure. Yeah. Catalyst itself has been around um, since, as I mentioned, the just the, the very beginning of 2015, um, Cal CHA has been around for about a year and a half now. And and as I had mentioned earlier, what we were first doing with Catalyst was really chasing down that more traditional capital A affordable housing model, just right. to look for inefficiencies and in places where we can innovate from a capital structure perspective. Um, I really spent the first year, you know, the year of 2015, trying to figure out where to focus, even though I had spent close to 15 years at that time in the institutional multifamily business, I don't think I fully realized that the affordable housing business is a completely different business with a different set of developers 
and uh, and and you know a different side of the bank, for example, who finances those transactions. Just a completely different structure and yeah. group of individuals. So I would say I spent the year of 2015 trying to meet as many people in the business, trying to learn as much about the business as possible. And then it was in 2016 that we actually got involved in those uh, Seattle projects that I mentioned uh, under the more traditional space. And it was along the way that we figured out that there just had to be a different way, a better way. And as I said, spent a couple years as we were working on those other transactions, figuring out how to get here, and which brought us to 2019 when Cal CHA was formed, and it's been off and running since then. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, COVID and kind of, you know, coming out of COVID, some of the benefits of uh, this uh, arrangement. But tell us a little bit about you know, when COVID did hit, right, what was some of the kind of immediate concerns that you had and how have those exhibited themselves? And then, you know, looking looking forward, you know, how do you how do you see the industry coming out of it or gaining momentum out out to where we are today? I think like any apartment owner, we were clearly very nervous about people's ability to pay rent, very concerned about just the health and, and well-being of our tenants and of our staff as well. Um, everybody pretty immediately shut down all of their common area spaces, which was the right thing to do, but at the same time, wasn't necessarily welcomed by everyone at all of our communities. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a little crazy to get uh, uh, sort of hate mail from people upset about closing the pool at a time where it's clearly not a great idea to be swimming with your neighbor. But, um, but you know, we had to deal with that stuff just as any, any apartment owner did. Um, I would say, you know, by and large, we have been um, relatively uh, impressed by the ability of our tenants to continue to pay rent. Maybe it has something to say about the essential workforce that we're targeting uh, and the stability of those jobs throughout the pandemic. Yeah. And so our collection ratios have continued to be pretty strong. I think if you look at urban centers, there's some owners in San Francisco, for example, of high-end product where it's a bit of a, a bloodbath today. We've seen similar things downtown LA and obviously what's going on in New York has been pretty well written about. Um, but from an operational standpoint, I would say those were a bunch of our concerns. Things haven't necessarily been as bad as some people uh, thought they they may be, um, but uh, but I think that's how I would sort of classify what we've been dealing with. As far as your 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 question around you know how we pull out of this, I think it just remains to be seen. I mean, realistically, that's a question about vaccines and therapies. I mean, that's a health related sure, question, and sure. I wish uh, I wish I had the answer, and I wish I had more confidence in our uh, current leaders. Uh, than I do, but uh, hopefully we'll have a change in leadership in the not too distant future, and and uh, we'll have a vaccine as well. So fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah, and and my question was also focused a little bit on 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 sort of that that sector of the of the real estate industry too. I mean, it, when I when I kind of look at the landscape of commercial real estate, and I you know put multifamily into into that bucket too. Um, you know, it's been multifamily, industrial, instead of life sciences that have continued to sort of you know you know chug along both in, both in terms of 
you know the value has you know relatively you know held held up relatively well if you look at a transaction volume that's 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 where it's happening right so from kind of like a you know value of the asset point point of view um that's what that's why i wanted to sort of see what what your sense was and whether you know you you see or predict any kind of big changes there Sure. I mean, I think on the life sciences side of things, that's not an area that we focus, but I think it's sure yeah, right. to understand uh, to understand what's going on there and why that continues to be in demand today. On the multifamily side of things, I would say the rationale for accepting lower cap rates over time than some other property types, and if you just look at the general fervor around multifamily investing over the past couple of cycles, I think part of the explanation for that has been this thought that in any economic climate if you lower the rent enough there's someone that will pay you to live there housing is an absolute need and uh, you can always find ways to backfill maybe not at the rents that you had projected on your way in but you can always find tenants if you will and that's just very different than if you think about what's been happening in the hospitality space if you think about owning a vacant office building today. Um, it's just a, a, a very different uh, set of circumstances for those product types. So I would agree there's there, there has been uh, recently a bit of a flurry of activity in the multifamily space. I've actually been surprised. I think a lot of people were assuming they were going to see deeper discounts once trades started occurring again, but that's not necessarily the case. And part yeah. of that is because on the operational side, things have held up relatively well. And I think if you just back up a little bit and think of the global search for yield, negative interest rates across much of the world, uh, the returns today in the multifamily space, even with the additional risk of operating through a COVID environment and not knowing when things will normalize, uh, that's still a more interesting yield and risk profile for many investors than the alternative. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So, Jordan, one of the things that has um, you know separated you perhaps from the others has been your kind of eye on innovation. And <clears throat> when you and I spoke earlier, you mentioned that you do pay attention and um, you know have been active in some you know prop prop tech you know innovations also um, in the property sort of technology world. Right. Tell us kind of how you've utilized that to to the advantage for your organization and kind of where where you see that uh, heading. Sure. Well, on a, on the, the personal side of things, have been paying a lot of attention to the prop tech space for many years now, I think eight, eight to 10 years, and have been making investments and advising various companies and just really trying to figure out how one of the crustiest and least innovative businesses around the commercial real estate industry could start to leverage and benefit from technology yeah. to do things differently and, and to enhance uh, operating efficiencies, et cetera. We recently hired a 15-year friend of mine, Stephanie Furman from Graystar, who had previously served as their global head of innovation. And she is now not only leading innovation efforts for us, but we have founded what we're calling the Catalyst Innovation Lab to do exactly as I just described, to sort of pilot and partner with various technology providers uh, to look at how we increase operational efficiencies at our communities. And we, we look at this through a slightly different lens than most. Um, clearly, to the extent that we are investing 
in companies that we're partnering with, we have the hope that they will uh, uh, produce sol- those investments will produce solid returns over time. But we're also looking at this through the lens, and primarily looking at the- this through the lens of creating incremental affordability for our residents through the ability to enhance operating efficiencies. Um, I would say additionally, we're looking at building systems, sustainability. Uh, There's a whole host of things we're doing, including looking at how technology could hopefully eradicate some of the uh, racial bias that exists in some of the standard leasing processes today. And so, uh, you know, I I won't, uh, I know we have limited time today, I could probably give you tw- uh, 20 different things that we're paying a lot of attention to today, but uh, it's definitely a space that we're going to continue to focus on. We often describe catalysts to people as living at the intersection of housing, innovation, and impact. And so in all three of those categories, you know, those are areas where we can continue to innovate and to to iterate and look for new opportunities. Yeah, great. No, I mean, I would I would love to hear, you know, maybe, you know, a handful of examples that you can give us of sort of some of the specific technologies that you've used or, you know, utilized through the organization. I think that'll be <clears throat> that'll be a, you know, great kind of, you know, primer on on uh, what others can be doing. Sure. Well, maybe I'll back all the way up to our our conversation about fires locally and blackouts and power issues. And one thing that we're paying a lot of attention to is resilient power, the ability to combine solar energy with battery backup and to have off-the-grid communities uh, that are fully resilient while we're dealing with, with one of these uh, pandemics that has as we were saying earlier, unfortunately proven to be sort of an annual occurrence here in the Bay Area. Yeah. Uh, so we're we're making great strides on that front. Um, one of the things that I'm most excited about today, and it's top of mind because we're in the middle of, of, of both signing up as a customer, but also making an investment, uh, is a company that's leveraging computer vision and some AI. I hate to use that term. I know it's it's massively overused, <laughs> right. but it's true in this case, um, to build effectively a rendering engine that scrapes the internet for every photo that's ever existed for a particular apartment building, for example, is able to digitally render floor plans within one to two percentage points of accuracy, and then has built a catalog of designs as well as negotiated MFNs with suppliers of things like countertops and cabinetry and fixtures, et cetera. And literally within minutes of having received the address of your apartment building can give you an insanely detailed scope with pricing and renderings of what they could do to take your older apartment community and fully renovate the interiors. Yeah. That's, uh, it's pretty that's fascinating. Yeah. It's pretty mind blowing. And, uh, I have to be honest, I didn't truly believe it. And the best way, I think, to test these things, especially through the eye of an investor who's trying to figure out how real this is, uh, is as a customer. And so we're actually uh, very close to inking uh, a contract with this company as a customer. We just bought an asset where we're going to be renovating all of the interior. So it was a perfect time to test this out. Um, but that's something that we think is is really interesting as well. Um, and then maybe the last thing I'll touch on, which which really crosses from innovation into impact, is the comment that I made briefly around some of the embedded racial bias that exists in the current leasing process 
you know, within apartments. I mean, first of all, from a uh, monetary standpoint, it's a bit insane that if someone is looking to rent an apartment, they have to go uh, put down a deposit or I should say a, a, um, an application deposit, right? An application fee at, uh, at any of the places where they're looking at living, yeah. um, not yet knowing sort of if they're going to be accepted or not. Um, furthermore, uh, the application process, you know, it's pretty open today where uh, the apartment community, the manager, the owner uh, has a really good feel for who this person is that's applying just based on all of the information that they gather. And so we think there's a couple interesting threads there. One is there should be a universal application where you have one fee that allows you uh, to use that application anywhere. Think about how kids apply to sure. college today, yeah. right? There's very similar things that go like on. A, like a clearinghouse of sorts, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. And so from an affordable stand, affordability standpoint, you know, you bring that that cost way down and sort of democratize the cost of applying to apartment a bit. Um, and then furthermore, we think that it should be a little bit more of a black box as far as who this person is. I mean, if you know generally how big this household is and where they work and what kind of incomes they earn, you know, you don't necessarily need to know everything else about this person to make a decision as to whether you're going to grant them access to your apartment building or not. So uh, anyhow, we're working on some interesting technology there um, to, to really create that universal application and do it in a way where everybody is treated fairly on the way in. That's great. That's great. Disruptive times like these are also times when uh, successful companies pivot and innovate and kind of look at sort of new things. We, you know, you've talked about a lot of innovation from a technical standpoint, but also from an investor and kind of financing standpoint. Uh, Cal CHA is only, like you said, 18 months or so old. How are you looking at your company? How are you looking at industry today? And what are you doing and what should the industry be doing to kind of really prepare itself for the, for the next cycle? I think there's a lot of answers there. At the asset level, there's all kinds of technologies and, and partnerships and innovations that we're making once again to enhance efficiencies, drive a lot of that back to our tenants in the way of incremental affordabilities. From a capital standpoint, we are continuing to iterate around a capital solution that has already been working really well for us, but we think that there's some opportunities to partner with some of the larger balance sheets on earth to credit enhance the bonds that we currently issue and sell to finance our projects such that we can further reduce our cost of capital, which allows us to further reduce our rents. So once again, all viewed through the lens of creating incremental affordability. Um, we're definitely looking to ramp up our uh, membership, I would say, in Cal CHA, we have a full-time government affairs person who is currently holding, I think, 80 different conversations with various municipalities across the state around membership within Cal CHA. Um, we're pivoting from a model that has been strictly an acquisition model to date, and we're now looking at new construction. Uh, oftentimes, Vlad, people talk about the three P's in the housing space and the first two, which would be protection and preservation. We feel really good about our efforts in that department. But that last P, production, is ultimately the answer to the housing crisis. We just yeah. need more housing. And so we think if we're going to meaningfully move the needle on the housing crisis, we need to be checking that box as well. Uh, legislatively, 
We're working on some things at the state level here in California to ensure that the housing that we're creating through the acquisition and conversion of market rate housing to middle income housing will actually help municipalities with their RENA goals, which are some uh, regional housing goals yes. that are set at a state level yep. for our underlying municipalities. And originally, that was all done through the lens of new production and not through conversion. And so we're having to go back and hopefully uh, change and, and just slightly alter some of that language because there's no reason why conversion should not count if you are regulating and restricting the rents and incomes of the people who live there. Um, there's other partnerships that we're looking to form with school districts, with transit agencies who often own surplus lands and are very focused on, for a school district, for example, how to provide teacher housing at an affordable rate. Yep. And can we build that on their lands you know, with our financing mechanism? So we've got a long list of ways that we continue to uh, – to, to sort of, I wouldn't say pivot, but but really expand what we're already doing. Right, right. So before we close, Jordan, um, a lot of folks are you know focusing on kind of the negative aspect of COVID and the economic impact that's going to have not just on this industry but economically overall. Right. Um, as you look at you know 2020 and 2021, probably more more uh, better and and then further out. What what gives you hope? Well, we have, I would say, you know, we're hopeful in a lot of ways. I, I, it's it's hard not to have uh, almost solely negative takeaways from what's gone on with, with COVID and the, the lack of response or the delay of the response. I think it's very obvious that the essential worker who we really cater to and provide affordable housing for is now being covered more in the media and appreciated more than they previously were. If you look at teachers, for example, we own an asset in Marin County. Teachers in Marin County on average make $50,000 a year, yet AMI levels, area median income in Marin County, is as high as it is anywhere in the country. Right. And if you do the math, there's no way that teachers can afford to live in Marin County. And so I think now that everyone is sheltering in place and having to teach their own kids from home and realizing that that is not a long-term solution. You know, I think there's more focus on teacher salaries, for example, and realizing that this is an unsustainable situation. So I would say, you know, we're partly hopeful that uh, this isn't just going to be a blip in time where people get back to their old lives and and forget about how much they counted on that grocery delivery person or that teacher to provide uh, education for their child um, uh, over the internet. Um, so I would say we're definitely hopeful about that. And then also, you know, I think just a continued focus at the state level and beyond on housing issues. If you look at all of the uh, various bills and, and discussions taking place legislatively in California today, um, you know, there's a real focus on housing and our need to create solutions across the housing spectrum, which ranges from homelessness on one end to home ownership on the other. And I feel good about what we're doing in the middle income space, because as I said earlier, none of these things are the end all be all. You know, what we're doing is not going to be the end of the house crisis <clears throat> in California. Um, we need to find solutions at every point along the way. And there's a lot of really smart people focused on these issues at the state level, which which definitely gives me hope. Yeah. 
Jordan, thank you for your time. I appreciate your feedback and learning more about Catalyst and uh, your industry. Stay safe. Thank you, Vlad. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. 